Welcome into this Five Clubs conversation. A breezy day out here at Quail Hollow Club. Very much looking forward to this conversation. I'm going to be joined by our, our man Brendan DeYoung. But there are guys out here who have a look. And the guy who's going to join us today has that. He takes particular interest in the way he presents himself. And he is a very good player. Played at the University of Georgia. Didn't distinguish himself the way that some of these other guys did. But he's now won on the PGA Tour. Plus, he has thoughts and opinions about what is going on in the professional game of golf. The person I'm talking about is Keith Mitchell. And that conversation is coming up right now. Today's Five Clubs conversation is brought to you by Golf Pride. Golf Pride knows that a grip isn't only a grip. It's the one piece of equipment in your hands on every single shot. You might not know it, but it has a huge impact on your game. In fact, Golf Pride recently conducted a first-of-its-kind study showing the impact of worn versus new grips. It showed that on average, a focus group of adept golfers gained an extra two yards of carry when they played with new grips. So what are you waiting for? Refresh your grips. Refresh your game. Visit GolfPride.com today to learn more. Golf Pride. Respect the grip. Why don't we start with, with this relationship? I'm always curious to know how guys get connected with others. How do you know this guy? Late night fire pits at Calusa Pines <laughs> sealed our relationship. We knew each other prior, and then I think that night, really, we bonded deeply. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say? I, well, we had to. Um, <laughs> there was an incident where uh, Sam Strucker almost lost his arm. We were sitting around a fire pit at Calusa Pines, and we had this fine idea that... We? Hold on. <laughs> Some people had this <laughs> fine idea that you shove a cork down a wine bottle, put it on the fire, and you can get this thing to shoot over the clubhouse. Well, we tried it with a, uh, a full we, beer. He, he, I tried he, it with a full beer, hoping that we could shoot that thing even further. And next thing we look over in the fire, and this thing's starting to bubble and boil. And uh, Sep gets a little bit worried at the time, so he goes to fish it out with a forearm. And as he touches it, this thing just explodes. Everyone kind of looks around, worried, trying to make sure that everybody's alive. Everybody's fine. We go back into the house. The next thing we see, there's blood everywhere. The sep had been cut, his whole arm this way. It's about two in the morning. So we're now trying to find an emergency room. One of the guys who was playing in the tournament knew a doctor, called a doctor, ended up, they took him in couldn't stitch it up so he had to get I think six staples. or seven staples in and then there. he played the next day he played the next day well, what, what event was this it Just was the uh, pro 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 member down okay. at Calusa Pines alright was this kind of off season-ish yeah. oh it was the yeah. middle of it it was let's put it this way it's, we, we can laugh about the story now because everyone's fine. And the fact that Sepp played the next day was the best part of the story. We kind of acted like nothing happened, nobody knew, and then here we are spilling the beans. <laughs> it, it could have been really bad. It, it really could have. I mean, for someone to lose an eye is not over-exaggerating at all. You, uh, I've never been there. I've heard it's a fabulous spot. 
you like good spots. Give me give me a, a couple of places that if you could just decompress at anywhere. Combination of the golf course being really redeemable as far as like really good holes and a great hang. It, it's that's such a good question because there's always two ways to look at it. What's your favorite course and what's your favorite overall like atmosphere like from the time you drive in to the time you leave and. I have a little bit of an emotional bias toward the honors course in Chattanooga because I grew up there. But yep. the cabins and the golf course, they just redid it last year. It's fantastic. Well, I would say I didn't redo it. They just kind of kept exactly the same sort of architecture they had before, just new fairways and greens and stuff like that. So that's probably my favorite. I actually just came from a Hoopie match club on Sunday. Uh, so I was there two nights ago and stayed there and played, played 28 holes. So you don't find me playing – that much, that many holes of golf are traveling to play golf when I'm not in a tournament just because we do it so much. And the fact that I'll travel to play 28 holes in one day shows you kind of how much I enjoy that place. And then Calusa, I always say, is probably the hardest golf course inside 30 yards that I've played because there's so many runoffs, elevated greens, and it's tight Bermuda. It's tight enough that you can putt it and not worry about it, but also you feel like you want to hit the nice chip, but there's still a little bit of grain down in there. So I, those three are definitely up there, um, up there in my book for sure. Do you have a spot? Honestly, again, there's a little bit of bias there. I am a member down in Calusa, yeah. but it's one of those places that you, as you drive through the gates, it's kind of all your worries go away. You know you're not going to have to go anywhere. You're on property. Um, and it's just, it's, it's such a good atmosphere. The membership's awesome. There's, uh, nobody's pretentious. There's, nobody's worried about what everybody else does. And it's just, it's a, it's a happy place. It really is. You know, it, people always ask, not always, but like, where do you want to play? Like bucket list places for guys. And I always am like, tour players, it's their job. You're not looking to make plans to go play golf. I know how you feel about the game. Uh, you have a love-hate-hate uh, feeling about it. Are there places you haven't played that you're curious about going to? Uh, great question. I don't know if I've ever even thought about that, considering I think about golf all the time. I've never thought about where would I want to go. Um, I, I actually was talking about it the other day. I've never played Oakmont, and Oakmont – is one of those places that everybody talks about a U.S. Open being one of the hardest places. It might be the hardest test of golf there is. So <laughs> I kind of say that lightly because I don't want to go and get my teeth kicked in <laughs> at a U.S. Open. But I, that's something that I um, I have never done, and I've I've thought about how how fun it would be to play a U.S. Open there. Um, and that's you know that's again the competitive side of me more so than the other. But that's that's. That's it. That's yeah, did you, did you play there in 16? I didn't, no. But getting back to that, when you say, like, when something like that arises, obviously it's who you're going with, right? You have to be going with the right group of guys. Because right. the golf is it's somewhat secondary. Obviously you're going to play a great golf course, but you want to enjoy the other stuff that's off the course as well. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, look, going there, the, the thing about Oakmont is that it's such a great American club, and there's no pretense to it. You don't go there and feel uncomfortable. It's a big, burly, grown-up, you know, it, it's... But when you're there, it's like, okay, this is golf. This is a golf club. Um, and you walk in the locker room, and it, it doesn't have the trappings of places like, you know, you mentioned the Honors, and I've heard Calusa, the facility's awesome. 
I hope you get to play in a U.S. Open there. I do too, and it, it's that's the competitive side, right? That's like this is where I want to compete. You know, fortunately, I've played in the Masters now twice, and that's yeah. always everyone's bucket list, right? Um, and so I would put Oakmont in that category, and then the fun category. I've heard that the best day in golf is Shinnecock in the morning, lunch at National, and then National in the afternoon. Right. I've never played either one of those two either. So that's that's up there. And you know, coming from somebody that travels and playing golf, to have like a, a something that you want to do in the in the sport shows you how much it's talked about and how excited everyone is about that day. I was gonna say it has to be a wonderful day because you hear it from a person like that. Right. That is the ideal. People that day. have done everything in yep. their life still say that that's the coolest thing. It, it is. I, I've done that day, um, and it's. The thing about it that blows your mind is that you can't believe they butt up against each other. You can't believe that two of the great golf courses in the world are not only next door neighbors, but they're a totally different experience as far as Shinnecock being, I think, with Oakmont, the greatest championship golf course this country can present to the world. And the National, which is this template of, of the origins of design in this country, that is quirky and short that you could shoot you could shoot 60 at national and 70 at shinnecock and the 70 might be better and right. that's not to disparage yeah. national it's yeah. just that's the fun side of yes, golf right like yes. you don't golf doesn't always have to be hard no. to, you know and sometimes you having a good round we all get that satisfaction out of and then having a fun layout on top of it makes some golf courses even better. I got to play Fisher's Island, and it was the same way. Sensational. It, it's short, yeah, and it's fun. And But if they put the pins in some of those spots, it's going to be hard. And that's the beauty of a golf course, that you can play a, a round that might not be championship level with some fun uh, pins, and then play the next round on the same track, and then it make it even harder. Yeah. When did you, when did you guys know that you could do this? Was there a, was there a, a brief time in your life for both of you that you went, I think I could make a living doing this. Mine was in Rio de Janeiro in September of 2015. I I was okay at Georgia. I don't want to, you know. Yeah. I, I wasn't as, as um, decorated, I would say, as a lot of the other Georgia guys out here. So I, I went and, and did the Latino America Q School, made it through, played the first part of the season did okay made some cuts um but then i lost in a playoff um in rio de janeiro to get to the point where i was exempt through a, a stage of q school in the second stage of q school and almost had a great run with seven hole sudden death playoff ended up losing on the last hole actually to alex roca, uh, rocha who Roca is it was a brazilian native yeah. and it was a brazilian open so it was a pretty heavy bias they weren't pulling for you no <laughs> But that was kind of the point. It was like, look, I almost won a professional PGA-sanctioned tournament. Like, that's kind of where I, it, a light bulb went off my head. Like, if I put my mind to this, I think I can do it. How about you? I think after my my junior year in college, I, I had a couple good years there. And I think it was more to the point that I knew I didn't want to do anything else. Like, I was prepared to, I'm going to grind this out and figure out a way to, to make it, just because I hated the thought of having to do anything else. And then... You know, I, I think there was still a big part of me that was very naive. Like, I remember thinking back now, getting through Q School the first time, 
Like it didn't really register how big a deal that was until you, uh, until you look back and think, geez, if I hadn't birdied that last hole to get through Q School, who knows what I would have been doing for the next couple of years. But I think kind of that light bulb went off sort of my junior year of college. When you, when you got in contention, and obviously you were there, but, but out here, you can't simulate that. You can, you can think that the quality of the way that you're striking the golf ball is going to put you in that position. So when you felt that for the first time, did you enjoy it then? Or did you only enjoy it after you reflected on the fact that it was fun to be in contention? For me, competition golf is what I enjoy more than any other style. I, I it's the adrenaline, the um, really the the pressure, whether it's internal or external, and um, just you know the competition of 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 showing yourself how you rank against others, and that's what I loved about golf. Like I. I I can go play for fun and have a good time, but it's never like the laser-focused, um, I don't know, battle out there. That's what I I enjoyed that more than I did anything else. And I think that's what kept me in the game and will keep me in the game a long time, that it's not about anything else other than the feeling. Like, I remember when I was here, the last time I was here on this hole was Sunday in the last group with Rory, and I was think I was one back standing on this hole. Like, that's why I love golf, is those sort of moments right there. How about you? Did you like, I mean, you got in the thick of it a fair amount for, mm-hmm. for a while there. Yeah. No, I hated it, honestly. And I think this is the difference why he is still playing very, very successful, and I'm sitting next to you now. I uh, I loved I loved the fact of sitting back afterwards and looking like, man, that was a really good week. I didn't like I didn't like that enough, and I wish I could have changed that about myself. That being in the heat of the moment, I I don't think I handled it as well as I could have. Yeah, ascending ascending in this sport, when the more you climb, the thinner the air gets. There's not as many people up there. Um, how, how do you assess? Like, okay, this benchmark has been hit, and and I'm I'm comfortable with that. And with that, I think comfort and confidence. It's kind of like running stride for stride. When you when you are going in the direction you're going, um, how do you how do you assess what's next and, and the refinement of what you're doing to get better? I, it's a great question because last week I did a lot of that. Like I had played really well at the beginning of the season, felt like I was really comfortable. Played in the last group two days in a row, on the weekend in LA. Had a good week at Zurich with Sung Jay in the yep. last group there. Um, we'll send the second. I think maybe the second to last group in Pebble Beach this year on Sunday. Finished fourth. So I'd been putting myself in these positions, and um, I I'd felt more. Com- I didn't feel the sort of anxiety that you might feel of what it's like to play in a last group. And so I started feeling more comfortable. Started playing better, and then I didn't play great the last couple weeks. And I went back and just looked at my stats. I just went back and saw, okay, what was the difference? Because I felt mentally in the same place as I did in um at riviera in pebble beach but i my scores weren't showing it and it's a constant like hamster wheel finding what's working and what's not and finding a way to prepare for it and then you have to also put in into uh weeks that are the golf course setup i was brian harman and i had a, had a long lunch the other day and we were talking about georgia football 
and how you give Kirby, you know, two weeks to prepare for somebody or a week. He's going to know every single play they're going to run. He's going to teach all the players. And, you know, he has a guy that watches each team and what they do. And we kind of have, you know, stat guys that watch each golf course and see what we need to do to prepare for the next week, let alone what we need to pair to make ourselves a better, you know, I don't athlete's a very strong word, but, you know, a competitor. <laughs> is, okay, this is what my game's weaknesses are, this is what I need to practice, and this is what I need the bias practice for this golf course the next week. And trying to match those two on a week off sometimes is tough. Sometimes they're the same thing, sometimes they're two completely different things. Because if I don't show up with my best game, it doesn't matter what course it is, right? If I show up with my best game and it's not biased toward that golf course and what it needs to do, like Hilton Head, I've never played well at Hilton Head because my best game is my driver. I can't use my driver there, so I have to be better than my average self in every other part of the aspect just to contend. Did you did you embrace the analytical side with with the way that it was becoming so prominent in the game? Did you did you accept it because you needed to, or did you embrace it because you found it interesting? I was I was talking to Dr. Rotella in 2021. And I mean, we went deep. It was like two days in this cave. Like it was, like, was, it was like Aaron Rodgers. Right, going yeah, it's darkness retreat. Yeah, but actually, it's a light. And with Doc, it's always <laughs> laughing and funny. But he he explained. Like I was always a math person in school. Like I hated English and reading. I was the worst. I, I can I can I still you can ask my buddies. I still can't even text the right words and 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 I'm always spelling them wrong. And it's not even on purpose. But I was always a math person. But I was a field player. Um, in terms of my swing and um, kind of shots. And Doc kind of told me, he's like, you need to take advantage of that because you can do the analytical side and the math side before, and then you can play field side. And I had never taken advantage of that. So then I started working with some stat guys and started diving into it, and I loved it. And it was something that I had not done the first five or six years as a pro. And I kind of look back and say, like, that's, I, I didn't say a missed opportunity, but just it's everywhere now. And I remember uh, a good friend, Harris English, was on the Ryder Cup team two years ago. And they have employed stat people to oh, help yeah. understand. I'm like, if the Ryder Cup's doing it, why, am, why should I not do it, really? Because like, this is the pinnacle of our sport for competing for our country, and they're using it. And I'm just out here on my own trying to make cuts. Why would I not use it? Yeah, did, we're, when you were kind of on the back end of your prime, was there somebody who was who was digging into that more than others? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, I, I actually hired a stat guy my, when the best year I had on tour, and how stupid I am, I fired him the next year. <laughs> fired him, <laughs> stopped working with him the next year, and it doesn't make any sense. But yeah, sort of towards the end, there were a lot of guys that were leaning heavily on that. And I think the proof is in the pudding. There's there's some guys that are doing some wonderful things out there I, with the stats. I totally agree. It's something that you can't. I wouldn't say discredit's the right word. Um, you can interpret it as however you want to use it, and that's where guys are like stat guys are not. It's it's black and white yeah. in terms of numbers. Yes. But how you use it isn't black and white, and that's where I kind of was afraid of. His first was like you have to do this, you have to do this, and you know, I just. You know, as a as a professional at your sport, you don't, you feel like, why should somebody else tell me how to play this when yeah. I'm here and they're there? Now it's like just the way you interpret the stats can really change. Um, you know, we could use the same numbers and how it affects our game is completely different and what we need to do. 
and it's a it's a wonderful tool for the caddies as well. Huge. It really is. It's a wonderful tool for the caddies. Like they will sit there with the stats guy beforehand and say, "All right, these are your green light flags," and if you start arguing it, he'll just pull out the stats and say, "Well, here you go. All yeah. the birdies have been made from there. You have to hit driver there, whatever, or, or vice versa." And it, it makes their job a lot easier. Well, yeah. What are the what are the most what are the most valuable to you, and are there several that the public consumes that you think are overrated? Value to me is targets in the greens, because um, you can look at numbers, and if a flag's short-sided, you can see, you know, twenty percent of the guys got up and down from this bunker, and out of those guys that got up and down, you know, half of them made a putt over ten feet, right? So you're like, this is just impossible to get up and down from here, and the others, and so. You it helps adjust your target away from these places and then into places that you know yeah. are more relevant. And a lot of it's bogey avoidance, really. It's like this hole's tough, this pin's tough. If you make par, you're beating the field. Okay, don't try to make birdie here. Maybe try to make birdie here. And then the ones that are the ones that are I think are a little bit overshadowed is um, driving distance if you don't have accuracy. Everyone talks about distance, distance, distance. Distance is a huge factor of the game. I, is, there's no doubt. But if you don't have the accuracy, it's it's. I wouldn't call it irrelevant. I would just say it's not as effective as yeah. as people may think it is. Okay, so like a stat that used to be really valuable when you're talking about distance and accuracy was total driving. Does that does that stat even matter to you at all? The combination of your distance rank and your accuracy rank. Like for example. The stat was introduced in 1980, okay? okay. Jack, Jack was 40. He, he won the total driving stat this year, he, that year. He was 13th in distance, and he was 10th in accuracy for a number of 23. Nobody in the history of that stat has ever been in the 20s since then, and only three guys have been in the 30s. Leaders now, today, to show you where, yes, accuracy still, accuracy still matters, but it's not as important the, the total driving leader is in the 50s, 60s, and 70s now on the PGA Tour. What does that say about the setups out Who's here? Who's the total leading driver right now? I don't know who it is right now. But I, if I had to look it up, I would say that their combination of distance and accuracy is outside 50. And I'll get it for you. You should get it right now. Uh, well, I don't, I don't I, have it right I, in front I got a guess. I got a guess. Why, why, you why? might have it right in front of you. You're the guy? <laughs> And it's not in the 50s, I can promise you that. What is it, 70s? Well, uh, at Zurich, the only reason I know this is somebody did See, like a See, because you're how old <laughs> Somebody did a stat and I saw it. I can't remember who it was, but it was like 35 or something. No, it yeah. isn't. Yeah, at, through Zurich it was. Okay, if you're in the top 50, wherever you want to go to dinner in the world, I'm paying for it. You're 35 right now? I, I, I mean, we'll, we're going to fact check this. Okay. Because, but Zurich anyway. doesn't really count. you got a partner. No, I'm talking... <laughs> I'm talking for the year. But I will say that the total driving definitely is a stat, but it doesn't equate the difference where you are relative to other people in terms of, like, if somebody hits it 360 and they're number one, the number three is 310. Like, it doesn't equate that 50 yards. So now the strokes gained actually equates the exact, you know, to the yard, the difference in everyone, and then the – I don't know how it equates it outside of distance. That's a whole other thing. But strokes gain is a little bit more accurate because if Brendan hits it 350 and I hit it 290 and I'm still 10th and he's one, yeah. it, it doesn't count that 60 yards 
gap. Where let's, let's flip that just for to keep it <laughs> keep this reasonable. <laughs> but I, I, total driving is an important stat. I say more accurate stat would be strokes gained. Okay, what what's the number? That guy right there is number one. Okay, what's what, his number? What number? Wow, he's thirty-seven. 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 Okay. If you hold inside the 30s, wherever you want to go to dinner. I mean, I heard, did, 70, you, did you hear 50 to 60? I heard 50 to 60. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm talking, I will go back and I will give you the leaders at the end of each season. Keegan okay. Bradley has won it several times. Okay. He was outside 60. Okay. It's just not, and again. Now i got different stuff to work on. Right? Yeah, you do. Well, I'm telling you. <laughs> that's all that's important for the rest of the year. Bruce Litsky, your boy Nick Price, Greg Norman, in the 30s. You'd be joining a hell of a list. If you hold that number, well, let's. That's not, not my new goal. Is to prove. No way we finish on the money list. Just yeah. on the driver. Or do you feel this fetish cap doesn't matter? Total driving thirties. Doesn't matter. No, I think it's. I, I love it. Um, I, I I've always appreciated the stat, and I think that look, rough out here. Like rough at, at Quail Hollow this week is pretty legit, right? I I hate to say I haven't been on the course yet. Okay. But usually it's. Usually it's it's fair. It's like you can get, hit a good shot on the green, um, but it's not easy. And so it's it's not where it's not a chip out rough, which I think yeah. is 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 better because you can still it's try options. to pull the heroic shot if you want, or you can play the safe shot. Or sometimes the rough's so thick you only have one choice, and it's just chip it sideways and go to the green. How much how much disparity or dispersion is there in setups on the PGA Tour? Obviously, the agronomics from West Coast to, to the state of Florida, you get up in the mid-Atlantic, the grasses are different. What, what is what what is the, the most penal setup? When you were playing, what was the hardest setup on tour? I remember, honestly, the first year I played out here, I think that was 07, that rough was so, so difficult. Yeah. That, that was the one for sure. And I, I like what Keith's saying. I like, I like the Bermuda rough where the ball goes to the bottom and it makes you think. Yeah, um, I think th- I think that becomes penal because all of a sudden you start flying it over a couple of greens and then you're in big big trouble. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, options like we said. Yeah, uh, the biggest thing about course setup that I feel like the PGA Tour staff does is give you a bunch of options. A lot of that comes with the architecture of the golf course in the first place, but then providing you options it makes golf a lot more strategically a uh, strategic. Um, and a lot more, I mean, entertaining, really. Because yeah. one guy can go here, one guy can go here, and they can hit, you know, and you can make a four a couple different ways. Like the 14th hole right here, you have options. You can lay up, you can go for it, hit it, you know, especially yeah. with the different pins. Where you wanted Honda, I think, is, I, I, you tell me, that the fairness level, which is kind of a weird word in golf, but it's penal. The golf course is penal. Bay Hill, I think, has become as arduous an examination as you guys face the hardest. Years. Is yeah. that hardest. the hardest? Period. Not even close. Not close. No, it's Bay Hill's the hardest, for sure. Um, why do you think that is? is it, I mean, the old man wanted it that way, and it really kind of, I didn't feel, and he passed away, you know, in, in September of 2016. And I, I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't hard then, but I feel like over the last five years, it's become really hard. A lot of it's been the greens they've so firm and fast okay. that you only have a very small section of the green that you can land the ball on to keep it on the green let alone where the flag is but you just think about number 15 like if you don't land that ball in that little diamond shaped area right in the front center of the green it's it everything goes like this out so it's off either side or off the back so you only have one spot to land it 
regardless of where the pin is, and then hopefully you land in the right spot, and then maybe on the right side of the right spot yeah. to get it closer to the and pin. Then, and then it's typically breezy on top of that, yeah. so then you're trying, yeah. to, trying to land in the right spot with the winds to deal with, and it just, just gets compounded. Yeah, it's interesting. From West Coast to, I, I just, you know, scoring on the West Coast is exponentially lower than it is when you get to the state of Florida. It's just those golf courses are more penal you've been you've been willing to share your thoughts on all this change that's going on um, with the PGA Tour and in professional golf where do you think the happy medium is going to be with these designated events as far as field size are there going to be some cuts Tiger talked about it at the Masters what do you think happens I, I it's a great question um, I don't have a have a concrete answer other than the the beauty of all of us playing, and when I say us, I, I'm in on this year. I might not be in on next year. So this year, everybody playing against each other, against themselves. And I know that's been said a lot, but you just look at Harbortown. You know, you have Patrick and Jordan coming down. Even last week, it was it wasn't a it wasn't quite a, it wasn't designated event and as strong. But you had Rom and Finau. Like it just really shows like the best players now instead of like kind of sprinkle them in here or there and you look at the FedEx Cup and it's kind of like all mixed and match. It's like these are the these are the guys. Like these are your superstars. And people like that. People like watching superstars. When you watch football, you want to watch, you know, Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes and these guys play against each other. That's just that's just the best entertainment value. And as long as we can find a way to do that regularly, um, outside of the majors, um, I think it's gonna be a success no matter how we look at it. Where where do you, where what is your position on what these events should look like as far as field size and not more pro cut. I, I am. I, I don't like the fact that they're talking about going to 78 next year for that. I'm pro cut. I, I'm pro cut. I, I like, and, I, and I know I think, I've yeah. talked about this almost that nauseum, but I think a cut is such a big part of golf it and is. it changes everyone's mindset. Be it the best player in the world. You see these guys grinding it out on a Friday afternoon to be around for the weekend. And, and I hate the fact that, you know, if we start playing 78 man fields, that goes away. Yeah. I, I just, to me, as somebody who loves the game and covers it, you know, the, the thing that I admire so much about what you guys do is that, and you mentioned, you know, Alan Mahomes, and they're sensational, and they're protected. There are rules to protect the stars in the sport of football. And I think doing this, designated events, I, I, I'm with you. It's a television product. You want to see them, you know, first of all, be motivated to play in these events against each other. But but there is a consequence that comes with not playing well, well enough in professional golf, and it's a cut. And, and that is the meritocracy of the game at the elite level is something that I admire the hell out of. And that if you're not good enough, there's a consequence that comes with that. You don't play the weekend, and your number can be affected. I think it, it pay you guys. You should be compensated for your work, whether it's two days or four days. But as far as the ability to, to jump up and, and do something on the weekend after not being good enough for 36 holes, I think is the essence of what you guys do. Yeah, I agree. Pro cut, I'm a pro cut guy. Now, you know, the reason they didn't do it is to not hurt the other fields as much. So, right. you know, where do you find the lines? Like, do you just restrict playing opportunity in the amount of tournaments you play, or do you do a no cut, you know, smaller field so that all the other guys can play more tournaments? and play for stuff it's just kind of you know <laughs> yeah. we'll see what happens do you are you like 70 for the playoffs like i thought 125 
I think the 70 for the playoffs is good. Because I love that. Not everybody makes the playoffs in every right. sport. No, now, I hate 125 to is a job. Yeah. That's employment. Yes. A 125 is not a playoff team. I agree. I agree. And and I, I, you know, I don't like comparing golf to other sports because it's not another sport. But if you look at it in terms of you know, who makes the playoffs, it's not every person. Right? It's the top guys go to the playoffs and they go. And 70's a perfect number for that. You're with that? I am. I am. I agree with you. I think you nailed it right there. Because if you finish 125 and they play one good week and it happens to be that week and all of a sudden you get to the finals, it's like that's cool and all. Don't get me wrong. But like it completely eliminates the guy that played great all season and then didn't play a good first week and then he's just out. Yeah. I I mean, look, when he Slocum won that event at Liberty National, I think he was 123 coming in. Yep. Um, Not only did he win at 123, like the guys he went through was like a murderer's row of Hall of Famers, which is amazing. But I'm with you guys. I think 70, that that is like the razor's edge for you to be in the top 70 to get to the FedEx Cup playoffs. That's a hell of an accomplishment. It's a good year. It's a great year. I mean, because you got to think 150 to 175 guys have a some sort of card or playing status each year. And now you beat you know, a majority of, of everybody, right? Like, you know, you beat over half, you beat, and and those, it, it just puts those guys into a race to the finish. Um, a couple things before we let you go. Um, when you came out on the PGA Tour and you graduated from the Corn Ferry Tour, I, I don't want to disparage the clothing that you wore then. Not good, though. Not good at all. Um, I'm not going to mention who it was. I mean, you could have been one of a, a two dozen guys. What has happened to you that you have taken personal responsibility for your appearance? <laughs> I, I mean, I, you look damn well, good. Thank you, thank you. I should say thank you before I go continue. <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying to keep up with this guy. <laughs> I would say I went about it differently, and that instead of finding a sponsor that was going to pay me the most or you know give me the most product, whatever you want to call it. I said I want to f- do exactly what I want to do, and then main- then start a relationship that way instead of you know an agent going out and shopping clothing contracts and clothing deals, and then them telling me what I'm going to wear if you know we we do a deal. I said, okay, I'm going to say I'm going to do exactly what I want to do, regardless of a contract, regardless of a clothing uh, clothing company, and I went with. Um, Sid Mashburn, who I've known for God, since 2010, 2011, always bought my. How did that really, Oh, so you you bought clothes from him? Off the course clothes all okay. the time, jeans, button downs, sport coats, like whatever my off course clothing would be. And so I went to him. I was like, maybe we can try this on the course. And he doesn't have a golf line. Doesn't plan on having a golf line. This is just his. He actually, I'm, I'm, he's got some good golf stuff. I was looking at at, at the website. And he's now got some specific stuff, whether it's, you know, a cashmere sweater or some polos, uh, some trousers, some, some, I mean, some really nice, I mean, look, his stuff is sensational looking. Um, was your father a style, is your dad a guy who likes, like, is he a clothes horse? He, he was. Okay. And he's now, it's so funny, he's retired living at the beach and he wears like cargo shorts and a terry cloth polo. It's hysterical. Okay, that's like he, it's, it's, I mean, <laughs> it is hilarious. Um, uh, and anyway, it, he, he was, he, I mean, you know, everybody's, I'm fortunate enough to have a, a great dad who taught me a lot of really cool things. You know, one of the few useless things was Pfizer clothes. <laughs> 
um, appreciation for golf, and you know that's not, that's obviously very useful. But um, you know, he he kind of got me into. Every, I mean, you know, everything. He just, you, you, your dad's your role model, right? No question. And so when, in, I appreciated everything he did. He took, would take me to the golf course and he'd always wear a visor and he always looked nice and I wanted to be like my dad. So here I am. So when you go in and you work with Sid and you start looking at swatches, and you're putting. Look at you! See, you get it. <laughs> he, he goes. He goes. What? Yeah, I'm, I'm, this is old. Straight up. <laughs> no, no, I'm listening. What is listen, I'm listening. We have finally got to the area of this that I really want to get into. I thought a swatch was a watch. No, but it, it is. It was. That was a big line when I was in high school a million years ago. So, we, I mean, you've got to get really into this stuff when you start looking at materials and fabrics and and, and color. I mean, you love it, right? I, well, it's I've I've said from the get go that Sid's attention to detail is our attention to detail in our sport yep. is his into his business and his fashion, which is um, close. And and he has done such a good job of explaining to me and teaching me all these things that I never would have known, and that now I can appreciate. It's like the stretch in the fabric, the breathability in the fabric, the you know the different. So he even taught me the different kind of pockets. You know, there's all these different style pockets and all the uses for them. Because, you know, most of these designs were actually when it mattered. Actually, when you actually needed the design to serve a purpose, where now the most of the purpose is, you know, performance wear, right? Well, all these fabrics that he has were performance wear for a reason before it was like the synthetic stuff. And it's so, it's just interesting for me to learn, fascinating. And I've just kind of followed his lead and he's taught me all these, all these tricks of the trade. It's very cool. His visor, like he he, he nails it. Yeah, yeah. He nails it. It's such a throwback to the seventies. I mean the visor was the I mean it was the thing. You could not do that. Let's try it on. Yeah. Now again you're gonna have to watch the oh, show. Look on at YouTube can we look at the inside of <laughs> it? I think it looks pretty good. <laughs> Just so you know, I'm not going to be putting you inside of your hat. <laughs> I don't know, why not? <laughs> Can I just keep them? You look great in it. Just My put head's some, cold, though. Put some sunscreen up My here. My head's cold. Is there, are there, I mean, I'm trying to think of, who are the other guys right now who are going visor? Um, Bo Hostler yes. is a visor guy. Yes, he um, is. He was, a, he was a true Imperial visor. Um, yep. the Imper you know, Imperial's the, the real Oh, no question. Visor. That's a grown-up visor. Yeah. He's got kinda, the little skimpy one. We call it hyzer, right? It's like a hat that goes <laughs> cut off. That's the hyzer, like the Lane Kiffin hyzer. Oh, yeah. Kirby's like right in the middle. He doesn't wear like the tour visor, but he doesn't wear a hyzer. His is like some sort of like middle ground visor. Um, but Bo's in there. Um, Hank Lebiota's in there. Um, but in terms of the Imperial, I think like the the, yes. Yes. the high, high crown visor, I think I'm the only one. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to the 70s, if you looked at the top 10 players on the PGA Tour, half of them, at least half, were wearing visors. There was a stat, a there was a stat about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, you've you got to have a good you've head. I don't know how long I'm going to have it, so while yeah. I have it, I want to I wanna no, use you, it. You're not losing. Yeah. You're, you're still in pretty good shape, aren't you? I think so. No, you don't have the double cul-de-sac going on. Double cul-de-sac? Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard that before. Oh, yeah, that's that's. How are you going? You got... <laughs> what was your what was your yeah, when did you final day? I gave up pretty early. I had I looked at wedding pictures the other day. And I think I was 27 when I got married, and I still had just enough there where I could keep it. And then I took the plunge pretty soon after that. Yeah. So probably 29, 30. 
Um, you mentioned the Ryder Cup earlier. Um, how do you how do you assess like that as a goal? Like, how do you do you is it out there on the horizon? How do you how do you kind of let that marinate in your mind? It's it's the goal, right? Yeah. I mean, it, you're representing your country in a top twelve. You know, the best you're the best players in the country representing your country, and it's that's the biggest honor, right? It's it's a goal that can't be a result goal it has to be a process goal to get there because it's not just like I want to be on the Ryder Cup team so I'm going to practice hard like you have to have a lot of process goals in order to reach it and um, you know I don't have the team experience I don't have really major championship contention experience yet two two things that are very important in Ryder Cup golf because the pressure is so high and those are the only two things that can equate to it is you know maybe a FedEx Cup um, win or a contention, major championship con- uh, contention, and players championship contention. If you pull those things off, then you're Ryder Cup um, material. I I feel like I have the game to do that, but I haven't been able to do it yet. So I got three more chances at a major in the playoffs this year, and hopefully I can do well and, and um, have a chance to make the team. When you were on the President's Cup team, did you, did that, I mean, look, you have a relationship with, you know, your relationship with these guys, particularly I go back to, you know, Nick, who's been, you know, a bona fide mentor for you. What was that like? It was the height and so far above above everything else. And honestly, Gary, after that, it was hard for me to try and replicate that, that feeling that I had during that week. Like, I felt flat for probably the next four or five events after that President's Cup. I'd get out there and you're so hyped up. You've got so much adrenaline going. The next, honestly, the next, as I say, four or five events, I'd get out there and try and try and look for that, and I couldn't find it, and, and that was difficult. It was hard to hard to get up and play. And I was a guy that grew up playing a bunch of team sport, and that kind of, you know, brought me back to that team sport. And it, as I say, it made it difficult after that. Yeah. All right. Let's get you out of here with these five questions. What's the last best thing you received from the U.S. mail? Like, went out, if, I don't know if you have a mailbox, you have a mail slot, something you actually received in the mail that was good. I mean, the master's invitation. Okay, well, that's yeah. a pretty damn good one. Yeah, I mean, was that a T? Did you, did you expect me to say <laughs> no, that? No, I, 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 I assumed that would probably be it. So that was a pretty nothing. good script there. Like, oh, we're just going like, to, you didn't tell me, but I'd, you know, No, I mean, I, I, that, that's, I, as I wrote that, I'm like, that's what the answer is going to be. <laughs> I, what was the first job you ever had growing up? Um, caddy. You were a caddy. Well, yeah, but where for my dad? Okay. And the honors. Um, mainly up up in the mountains in North Carolina, they didn't have caddies, and my dad always liked to walk, and he would always pay me, whether it was twenty bucks, thirty bucks at the time, to carry his club for eighteen holes. Um, and I and I enjoyed it. Like I wasn't old enough or good enough to play with him and his guys yet, but he always wanted to include me. So I got to caddy, and I. It's awesome. And honestly, I think it helped me. Um, sort of understand like at that age to be able to hang out with um, you know when I'm six, seven, eight, nine years old to be able to hang out with my dad and his friends all the time you just learn like to just, yeah you just learn yeah. to kind of communicate better totally I, I, I had a lot of those experiences where are the mountains did were, Highlands Highlands Country oh, Club oh gosh that's special that's a great it's, spot it's awesome oh my gosh <laughs> alright um, the player on tour I want your answer on this as well. Even and maybe back when it's your prime, who is the player on tour who would run the fastest mile right now? 
Harry Higgs. If there, if there was a, it was, if there was a handle of Tito's at the end of the, yeah. you're right. The there's no chance anybody would beat him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> In my prime, I mean, I've got to throw Tiger's name out there. Yeah, yeah. So he, was, yeah. yeah. he ran a lot. You know, the first year he played in Charlotte, which was the second year of the event, he was staying out of Ballantyne, and he was running down Ballantyne Commons Parkway, and somebody took a picture of him. They put it on the front page of the Charlotte Observer the next day. Think about that. (laughs) Think about, I mean, just, you know, what what a deity he was and is. Mm -hmm. Just a grainy photograph of him being in this town (laughs) was on the front page of the newspaper. (laughs) All right, um... If the tank was empty, who is the player on tour would be the longest? Just just totally unleashing. Currently, right now on tour, who'd be the longest? I would put I don't I haven't seen Brandon Matthews hit it, but I've heard yeah. and I've heard that Ryan Brim, when he was like going after it, uh, apparently he's you know, he's kind of leaned on the accuracy side now, but he could smash it too. Yeah. I I don't I don't know, but I would I would put those two there. I've heard Finau when he really wants ah, to, good when he wants to yeah. let it I mean, out. Yeah. He's, he's swinging like 50% on yeah. the driver. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah he can he I mean, can he gets down there like this, and he takes it to like right here. It's gripping up like, on the steel. Yeah, yeah, it's just like this. And I want him to just stretch and lean. He looks yeah. like he's playing with a little kid's club. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. And he, here we are. He just won last week. Like, yep. what are we to say? No, it's true. <laughs> All right, last thing. Um, what's the best advice you've ever received? Believe it or not, it was um, to hit a fade with my driver. Who gave you that advice? Peter Persons. And it was a fifteenth, 15th, 15th hole at Idle Hour in Macon, Georgia. I was standing on the back tee, and I always had speed, but I didn't have the accuracy. And he's like, "You need to start hitting a fade." I was like, "I don't want to hit it shorter. I don't want to hit it shorter." He's like, "You're not going to hit it shorter." So I hit a couple balls out there, and you know, two like. One good fade, one okay fade, and I smashed one, and then they hit like two in the left trees trying to hit it hard, and they were like two yards apart. And from that point on, I think my driving has become exceptionally better. And I was in college, my junior year in college, and I learned that you can hit a fade far now because what used to make a fade go shorter was a spin yeah. and the launch. It would do this. And you would flatten out a draw and then have better optimization. Well, you can optimize a fade now. Right. And my swing is a lot is very rotary, and so having just being able to turn and kind of just like hold this way, matched to my swing, matched to my eye, and the equipment took the spin off of it, and that's that. You've always been a fader of the golf ball. I have. I've always been a fader. When you got a gut like this, you kind of got to find a way to get around it. <laughs> and and I've probably I've got a lot better advice in the in the real world, but my golf advice that's by far number one. <laughs> in the fade. Listen, we appreciate you doing this. Uh, have a good rest of the season. So Thanks, guys. Great seeing you. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Enjoy it. it. Well, we certainly appreciate Keith Mitchell taking the time to join us. And I will repeat again what I said to him when he, he made me not necessarily eat my words, but he pointed out the fact that he is leading in total driving. And it's, he is 37th right now. His number is 37. And like I said, if he stays inside the top 40 or that 40 number or better, 
dinner for him anywhere in the world. There's not a chance in hell he's going to do that. I hope he does, but he won't. But most importantly, not only thanks to him, but thanks to